Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. We strive to lead people to be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. Our goal is to tear down the walls that have kept people away from church to help them build a relationship with God, our Creator. We are so glad you're tuning in today. We hope and pray that this leads you to Jesus and His path for your life. So, without further ado, here is today's teaching. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to go to my nanny's house and play in the attic. Uh, yeah, my, my nanny is my dad's mom, and uh, man, the, the, one of the cool things about nanny is that she um, kept everything. Like most people would call that hoarding, but I call it preservation uh, when it comes to my nanny's stuff. So like when you go up into her attic, it was like a, a natural history museum from the 1950s and forward is what it was. And so like everything that every did, she was an elementary school teacher, I think second grade for decades, and she kept Everything, like and every little shadow box, every little science experiment, every little literature tool, all of it. She just kept it up there, so we'd go up there and just play with that stuff. My, my dad and his sister, my aunt, they, they, of course, grew up in that home, and every single toy they had growing up, uh, some of you know, like the 60s and 70s were like prime time for some amazing toys. And the cool thing about those toys is they were all made of like stainless steel and asbestos, and so they were still in great shape when I was a kid. So I'm playing with these toys, and we would just go up there, uh, and every now and then we'd yell down, to nanny and we'd find a toy. We'd say, hey, can we keep this one? And she was normally like, no, we need to keep that in the attic. And I'm like, why? We'll just, we'll move it later. Um, but th- we didn't care that it was summertime. It was 136 degrees in that attic and we were sweating and losing pounds after pounds. We would stay hour after hour and we would just hang out and play. And this is why, because we loved to discover the treasures. I mean, it was like Indiana Jones, man. We were up there and we'd dig through the recesses and we'd go back in the corner where she told us not to go because you know you're a great aunt. She once fell through a ceiling in a living room because she was in the attic. We didn't care, man. We're straddling the, the rafters and we would just find stuff. It was so cool. And these treasures are things that even to today, like my kids uh, like to play with. Have you ever had a moment in your life or a season of your life where you were able to really do some treasure hunting? You know, a lot of people feel this way about the house that they live in. I didn't even know that neighborhood was a good neighborhood, but we were just driving along. We saw the sign, called the guy. Now we live here. We love this house. Some of you might feel that way about your spouse. You know, you weren't really looking for love, or maybe you were looking for love in all the wrong places. But this person walked into your life, and you were like, ah, treasure. And now you're happily married, or you're dating, and it's just, it's wonderful. Uh, Maybe you found a, what, a, a gift that you were just looking everywhere for. You've had this gift. You couldn't find it. You couldn't find it. And then you're just at TJ Maxx, and it's on clearance in the back corner, that really weird corner of TJ Maxx. And you're just back there, and you're like, how did this get here? I don't care. Buying it is 50% off, and I've been looking for this. Boom. Treasure hunter. Finding these treasures is just such a, a cool part of our life. It kind of keeps us going, kind of keeps us deciding. I start like that because of this. We're starting this new teaching series today called Manifesto. And it's actually not a new teaching series. It's something I like to call a sequel series. We've done a Manifesto series before, back in 2015. You might remember it if you were here. And man, uh, the concept of Manifesto is huge. A Manifesto says, this is what we're about This is what we stand for. This is what we stand on. This is why we do what we do. It's our purpose. And it's really important as a church family that we come together and we like, we remind ourselves, why are we here? Because let me just tell you something. I said it to our volunteers this morning. There are lots of churches in town. Like, why are we doing this together? Why do we come and set up a movie theater into church space? Why do we meet in people's houses? 
In September, we turned five years old. And it's real easy after a five-year-old uh, church, just, just so you know, that's a big deal, really big deal. The average church in America, once it starts, has a really hard time pay, making it past three years. And we have a really good strength and core group and momentum going into our fifth year, fantastic thing. Praise God for that. But why? Why are we doing this? And so it's important for us to step back and ask the question, what drives us? What is our you know, manifesto? We say something every single week at our church. I normally close the service with it, that we need to go shine light in dark places. That's part of it. Our goal is to take the light of Jesus and be able to put it into the lives of other people in this city, in your family, in your home, in your neighborhood that don't necessarily have it. Shine the light of Jesus. But even deeper than that, we've got some goals, and we've said this since day one. We want to be a people who are God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. We are God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. And I don't do a lot of like call and response stuff at our church because sometimes that can be awkward. But let me just ask you to do this with me. Let's, let's say that together. God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. Let's go. We are God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. It's been a little while since we've really touched on that. What does that mean? And so over the next several weeks, what I want us to do is to dig into that. Where does that phrase even come from? Is it in the Bible? Not like that. But one time someone asked Jesus, you know, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he answered him. This is in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. He said, the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So when Jesus, the Savior, the founder of the church, comes together and they said, what's the most important thing? He said, listen, you need to love God with everything you got and you need to love other people the same way. You have got to love, love, love. The book of Galatians says that all of the law is summed up in this one thing. You should love each other. And so what does it mean to be a God-chasing, grace-shaped love agent? We actually got that phrase from this passage. To be a God-chaser says, I'm going to put God at the center of my life with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. The, the grace-shaped part uh, kind of comes from some other places in Scripture, specifically Ephesians chapter 2 that says it's by, it's by grace through our faith that we're saved, but it's God's grace that shapes us. So many other things in this world can shape us, but if we've got God at the center of our life, if we're seeking Him and serving Him with our life, His grace will shape our future. It doesn't matter what baggage and what background you brought into this community. God will shape the future. And then the love agent piece is like, look, if we're being changed by God and his biggest commandment is for us to love, then it needs to overflow. And so that's what being a love agent is. And so we're going to get into those three things as we study through this manifesto idea. Every week, we love to look to the Bible for answers to life's most important questions. And I started out this morning talking about a treasure, finding a treasure, because within the pages of scripture, it's truly a treasure. And I want to talk about a time when someone discovered maybe one of the biggest treasures that was ever discovered uh, in the history, especially of the Old Testament. Uh, if you've got a Bible, flip over there to, uh, we'll be in Second Chronicles chapter 34. Second Chronicles chapter 34. You can also find this same story in Second Kings chapter 22, uh, but we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 34. And we're going to meet someone who discovers an amazing treasure and see what it means to be a God chaser. So Grab your Bible, flip over there. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to know that we got free ones we give away every week. Grab them as you leave. They're right there at that door as you exit on that table. Uh, but we'll also have the scripture on the screen behind me. And I got to give you a little bit of, of background before we jump in, because I think it's really important. Anytime you jump into, jump into scripture, you got to know, like, 
Where am I coming in from? Like what's happening in the story right now? And so when we jump into 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we're in the city of Jerusalem. This is, uh, this is the hub of all Jewish life, for religion, for politics, for economy. This is where the Jewish life centers around. And our main character has just become the king of the Jewish people. And so we're going to meet him in verse 1. 2 Chronicles 34 verse 1, it says, Josiah, there he is. He was eight years old when he became king. Man, what were you doing when you were eight years old? Uh, I was playing with He-Man. It was fantastic. This guy becomes king. It says he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. That's a pretty good long reign for a king. Stop there. We should leave it on the screen here for a second. Why eight years old? Well, you know, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science. You guys have ever studied a history of any kind know that, especially when there's like a kingship, a lot of times when the king dies, his oldest son becomes the next king. And so that's what's happened with Josiah. But it's more important to understand what got to the point where, why did he die? When his, why did his dad die while he was so young? It actually is a pretty ugly story. And to get to the Josiah story, when he became king, you've actually got to back up a couple generations. Uh, in fact, three generations earlier, we meet Josiah's grandfather. We're going to kind of track the family tree on the screen behind me, but we meet Josiah's grandfather. He's a great king. His name is Hezekiah. Okay. Uh, the last time we did the manifesto series, we actually talked about Hezekiah. So if you don't know his story much, go back and listen to it on our podcast. I actually did this week just to kind of rem- remind myself what I said. Uh, but Hezekiah, he does some really good things. The big thing that Hezekiah does for the nation of Israel is that he actually, the nation of Judah, this is the Southern kingdom. The kingdom was split in half at the time. So there was Israel in the North, Judah in the South, and Judah is what we're following here. He made some major reforms. Uh, he's called one of the greatest kings in Jewish history because he helped the nation return to worshiping God. See, the people have been worshiping these pagan gods, uh, specifically some gods called Baal, Asherah, and Molech. And the first two, uh, you know, the majority of the worship of them involved these really immoral acts, uh, specifically there were temple prostitutes you had to visit, and you can imagine how heinous that got. It was crazy. It was extremely pagan. And then the last one, Moloch, the, the worst part about the worship of Moloch is that it required human sacrifice. In fact, King Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather, his own brother had been sacrificed to the fires of Moloch when he was very young. This is the world that Hezekiah comes into, but over the time, uh, Hezekiah takes this, this huge concept of God's plan for the nation of Israel, and he reforms the nation. So he kicks out these demonic spiritists and witches and, uh, and goes to the places called the high places where they had all these idols and shrines, and he tears them down, and he just clears the country, and he returns people back to worshiping God, and it's a beautiful thing. So Hezekiah comes in and reforms the nation of Judah, and he's known as a good king in the Bible. But unfortunately, like every person, Hezekiah dies. And his son becomes a king. His son's name is Manasseh. Now, Manasseh, he had a pretty long reign, 55 years. That's a long reign. And in that time, he basically ruined it. Uh, He destroyed everything that his dad, Hezekiah, had reformed. Uh, He brings back in all the old pagan worship and the the immoral practices and the child sacrifice. And it's just, it's ugly. It's a big, bad problem. So that's Manasseh, okay? Then Manasseh dies. And his son, Amon, becomes the king. Now, here's the problem with Amon. Uh, he didn't last long. He was king for about two years, and he was so bad that his staff actually assassinated him. And so uh, that's the world that Josiah walks into as the king when he is ripe old age of eight years old. 
I, I want to tell you, like, historically, when a kid becomes king, normally there's like a staff that runs the kingdom and trains him. And so don't, don't think that he's having to make all the calls at eight years old, but this is the world he walks into. And, and it makes me step back and think about the world that we live in. Right now, just a couple walls over our kids, venture kids over there, and they're singing their hearts out to God, and they're learning about the fruit of the Spirit in their vacation Bible school right now. I got two kids of my own. I know, a lot, I know a lot of your kids, if not all of our kids at our church, and I'm just like, I look at the children of the world we live in, and I kind of understand the plight of Josiah, because don't we live in the mess of our forefathers? You know, and I've said before, I remember looking at my kids right after they were born and kind of feeling bad about it, like, man... I'm sorry that I brought you into this. It's a mess. It's a hot mess that we're in. But here's the thing. When we come into this world, this is what we have, a responsibility. <laughs> we have a responsibility to do what we can in this world. And the more we know about God, our responsibility is to seek God with our lives and bring other people into that same mindset. So we can kind of step back and understand what Josiah walks into, but one thing that Josiah has different is he's the king of a nation, a nation that has completely left the foundations that they were founded on and left the God that has saved them time after time again. So now let's tell Josiah's story. We'll back up. Second Corinthians, second Chronicles 34 verse one says again, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of his father, David, actually like his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, but his patriarchal father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And so that starts out pretty good, right? So let's see what he did that was so good. Verse three, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, okay, he became king at eight. This is the eighth year of his reign. So he is how old now? 16, your math doctors, good job. He's 16 years old and look at what he does. He began to seek the God of his father, David. It's a big deal. Uh, young Josiah, I'm guessing, must have had some good mentors in his life. He didn't just decide up and decide to do it. It's possible that God's spirit moved among him. He just decided to make better decisions. I think it's more likely that he had uh, a tutor, maybe his mom, she's mentioned in the second Kings version. Maybe his mom knew something about the God of, uh, of David. Uh, maybe he had a, a priest who was just still holding on from the days of Hezekiah who came and instructed him. We don't know, but here's what I feel very certain of. Josiah had a mentor in his life who was saying, listen, bud, you're the king. And can I give you some advice? Like, you remember how dad and granddad just really screwed things up? Can we return to the God of Israel? Can we do that? So he does that. It just says he begins to seek the God of his father, David. And that's him at 16 years old. He doesn't know everything. And that's important for us to remember. We'll get to that later. He doesn't know everything there is to know about serving God. But he says, okay, I know a little bit. So I'm gonna try. Let's keep reading. There's a second half of verse, uh, what was that, three? Second half says in his 12th year, okay, so now how old is he? Eight plus 12, he's 20, right? It says, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, Asherah poles, and idols. So he starts this pursuit of God at 16. Four years later, he's apparently come to some conviction. Okay, one thing that's wrong in this place is that we're worshiping demons and we're bowing down to idols and we're not serving the God uh, that founded our nation. Josiah's got some spunk. Here's the thing. When you go around tearing down people's places of worship, it makes them mad. Just so you know, like if you had the thought of doing that, it makes him really, really mad. But here's what he knows. He knows that he's got to do this. And here's another thing I found. Because Josiah had the responsibility and he also had the opportunity, this is going to decide his character. What is your responsibility 
And what are your opportunities? What is your influence? I'm going to tell you guys, we all have a sphere of influence. It's going to define your character. Verse 4 says this. So under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them. He smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These are the things that the people revered as gods, okay? Smashing them. Like, I'm only reading a portion of this. You should read all of it. These he broke into pieces. He scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on the altars. So the same altars that these priests were presiding over worship of these demonic things. Apparently he has them killed and he has their bones burned on the altar. This is how serious Josiah is about this reform. It's hardcore. And so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. Now, um, how would tearing down these high places help? I mean, these people have faith in their gods, right? This is what I found to be true, that the quickest way to bring someone back to God is to show them that the thing that they are putting trust in has no power. You know one thing about idols is they don't fight back. And can you imagine putting generations of your family's trust and faith into these idols and saying, we've got to do this. We've got to do this because our crops are going to fail or because our family's going to be weak. And Josiah comes in and says, oh yeah? You think that pole has power? You think this wood that you, your grandfather carved has power? What happens if I tear it down? And we learn quickly that when we begin to tear down the things in our life that we revere that aren't God, we learn that they actually had no power. Sidestep here. What are the things that we focus on? What are the things that we put in the center of our life? We say we want to be God chasers, but what are the things that we actually chase? Career, relationship, financial stability, economic success, political success, uh, education. These are things that we seek. How often have you run out of money and been okay? How often have you heard that someone lost a job, but they were, they were okay? How more often have we even seen that people who leave behind the things of this world and then begin to pursue God, not only are they okay, but they realize that they find something that matters, something that lasts and something that does have power. And so what Josiah teaches the people by destroying their places of worship is that their gods, quote unquote, little g gods, have no power. He says, let me show you something that does. Um, so he keeps talking about this reform he brings to the land. And this is interesting. As you read that, you're like, well, of course he did that. I would expect to find a story like this in the Bible. Like that's why I got in there, right? He was a pretty good guy. They wrote a story down. Here's a really interesting thing because we're about to get to the section that's gonna make Josiah's story. It's the story that makes Josiah's history matter because Josiah is about to discover a treasure. You remember we talked about my nanny's attic? way better than the G.I. Joes I found, I'm going to tell you. In verse 8, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, okay, if you're tracking along, he's 26 years old. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent a few of his leaders, and there's a bunch of names that I'll mess up, but he sends those leaders to do what? To repair the temple of the Lord, his God. So this is Josiah's thought. We're going to get back to God. I guess we should fix God's house. Uh, the temple was something that the Jews used as a center of, of, of their religious uh, worship. They would, people would go there to dedicate their children to God. People would go there to look for advice. They would go there to offer sacrifices to God. Uh, the priests were there guiding people towards God. But um, Josiah looks at that and says, man, we, we need to fix this place. Why? Well, the temple hadn't been in use for 70 years since the time of Hezekiah. 
70 years. The temple was supposed to be the center of spiritual life of the Jewish people, but the temple hadn't been utilized for 70 years. That's a long time. Let's put that in modern perspective. 70 years ago was 1948. And imagine a facility that hasn't been used since 1948. You can drive up and down the uh, roads and the back roads of North Carolina. You can see those places. They're covered with kudzu. They are out of shape. They're not in good shape. And so he looks at this temple and said, we got to fix this thing up. And so um, just to give you some perspective, in, in, in 1948, Harry Truman was president. How many of you voted for Harry Truman? Could you even tell like what his platform was? Like maybe like if you read his biography, you could tell us like, like we don't know. World War II had just ended a couple years earlier. It was a long time ago. So Hezekiah reaches way back into their history and says, okay, we got to fix this place. And so he gets some work done on the temple. I'll kind of sk- skip through some of the text. You can read it on your own this week. I hope you will. But it says one day uh, while they're doing some work on this temple, they're moving some stuff around and there's specifically like this treasury box. They had collected a bunch of money so they could pay for the temple. And I think a lot of it came out of the king's treasury and stuff like that. So they had this big treasury box and they go to move the box and they find something. Check out verse 14. It says, while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. And at first you hear that and you think, well, okay, sure. Of course there was a book of the law of Moses that had been given. You know, of course that would be in the temple. And how many Bibles do we have at our church? We got Bibles that people forget and we just put them in a lost and found. How many Bibles do you have at your house? I got multiple versions of the Bible that I don't read most of them. How many Bibles? So we think, you know, Bible, that this is, this, this is their Bible, essentially, the law. Uh, we say the law, like historically, we're talking about what we would call the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, specifically, probably the book of Deuteronomy. Of course they found the book of the law, but here's something that you need to know. You remember we talked about Josiah's granddad? Manasseh, he really made a mess of things. He really did. He he destroyed all the reforms of Hezekiah. Things were bad. But during the time of Manasseh, things got so bad and something really unfortunate happened. They had lost the law. Like it was gone. There were no extant copies of what they would have referred to as the Bible. They didn't have it. It was gone. And we're not sure uh, like how exactly that happened. Uh, one good speculation is probably that these people were rebelling against God and the pagan priests were using the temple at the time, by the way, for pagan worship. It was terrible. But there's a good chance that there were lots of copies of the book of Moses and they just brought them out and burned them or threw them away or destroyed them. And that's what happens in a coup, right? You throw out the old regime. Some faithful person said, you know what? I might not survive this, but God's word will. And I'm so thankful for that person because he or she is why we have those books today. And they tucked it in somewhere hidden in the temple so that 70 years later, while while Josiah's crew is working on the temple, they rediscover it. And discovery was huge. It was a treasure. They weren't even looking for it. I mean, you know, you're painting the walls, you're just watching Chip and Joanna, you're thinking about putting up some shiplap, and then you're like, ah, I found the law. Here it is. And it changes everything. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 15 it says, so Hilkiah, remember this is the high priest. Hilkiah says to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. There's so much in that sentence. Like we read it like, oh yeah, of course I found it. Can you imagine? Like you're like, you're the priest. There's a good chance he's never read the book of the law. He's probably way old, not, like not much older than 70 years old at the oldest, okay? He's probably never seen a copy of it. If he had, it was a long time ago. And he's like, do you know what this is? This is the word of God. 
So he hands it to his secretary. It says in verse 16, uh, Shapin, the secretary, took the book to the king and he reported to him. We're going to skip past some of the things, but it's funny because he gives like the report. He's like, yeah, the painting's going well. The ship lap is up. Uh, they discovered some rotting in the floorboard, but Chip called the owner. They're going to get $10,000 more. It's going to work. You guys know that show. And so it all worked out. But so he gives the report on the building project. And he goes, and uh, by the way, um, Hilkiah's people found this. And he pulls out the scroll, like the physical book. And he's like, they found this. It said, Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. I took some time this week to read. Um, there's debate over like how much of Moses' law they actually found. Um, some would say the whole thing, everything from Genesis to um, Deuteronomy, uh, all of it. Some would say maybe it was most of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I don't think that's really relevant or it matters, but here's the thing. I went and read through the book of Deuteronomy because this is what they're most likely referring to as the law. And because I'm like, I wanted to put myself in Josiah's shoes. I'm trying for a second to be the king of the nation. Imagine being the president of the United States and someone discovers the constitution and you just, you've never heard it before. You remember your granddad talking about it, but like, oh, there was this document, but we lost it. And you get to like sit back. So I'm trying to be Josiah. I'm like, hey, what, what am I supposed to be doing? Who is God really? What does he really want from us? So I read through this thing, and I'll be honest, I didn't read the whole book of Deuteronomy this week, but I read lots of chapters and specifically focused on the last several chapters. And as I read it, I was, this is me, like spiritually, emotionally, almost physically brought to my knees because I got to hear God revealing himself to the nation of Israel for the first time and saying, this is who I am, and this is what I want from you, and this is what it means to worship me and honor me. And near the end, there's this long list of these are the blessings that will happen to your nation if you follow me. And then like the last two or so chapters is a quite extensive list of these are the curses that will come upon you if you don't follow me. And so I tried in my feeble little mind to be Josiah for just a minute. I'm hearing this for the first time. The difference is I'm not in charge of the nation of Israel. Guess who is? Josiah. Look at his reaction. Again, the words don't do justice, but I want you to try to put yourself in his shoes. Verse 19 says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. This is in Eastern culture, like the biggest sign of grief. If you found out that your parent had passed away, you might rip your clothes. If you found out that, uh, you know, you lost your entire business and your whole family is going to be, you know, just destitute, you might rip your cloak from top to bottom. This is what Josiah does. After he hears the law, verse 20 so he gives these orders, and we skip ahead of 21. He says, okay, so go inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book. This is interesting. He says Israel and Judah. Uh, remember I said the kingdom had become divided. It was kind of a civil war thing that happened sort of, and it was kind of two leaderships. But he recognizes that this law is to all the Jewish people. And even though our kingdom is divided right now, he's like, look, I, I, need you to, I need you to inquire of the Lord about this for all of Israel and Judah, both kingdoms. What's written in this book that has been found, he says, because great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us. Because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They've not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. And so they go out, his, his leaders go out, and they find a priest, uh, a, a prophet, sorry. She's actually a prophetess. It's a lady. I love that it's a lady. God is always empowering ladies in the Bible, and we forget that. It's amazing. Her name is Huldah, I think is how you say her name. This lady was a prophet of God during this time. Uh, there were other prophets that you might recognize their names from this time. They have books in the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah, Zechariah, leave it these, these times. And so 
these are prophets that are living in this time. They were like big time prophets. And so it might be some speculate, they were like busy. <laughs> uh, but this lady was also a prominent prophetess in the city. And so they go, they go find her and, uh, and she reads the book of the law and she verifies it. She spends some time praying about it. And this is what she says. She says, yeah, yeah, God's pretty angry. <laughs> God is, he's pretty angry at his people. They've gone so far from him. And I want to tell you, there will be punishment, but not yet. The punishment will come eventually, but not yet. And I'll tell you why not yet. Because your King Josiah is going to honor God. And so the message gets back to Josiah. And he's like, well, that's good news, kind of. I mean, <laughs> it's good news for now. It's good for me. But Josiah's got a choice to make. And this is what he does. We're actually going to read it uh, from 2 Kings this time. We've been in 2 Chronicles. So if you want to flip back to 2 Kings, um, it's all in there, but I just like the way it's worded here. It's a little more concise. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23, it says, The king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. Just pause on that thought right there because this is everyone. Uh, some speculate that there could have been like tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people gathered to hear their, their king speak. This wouldn't have been uncommon in a kingdom, ancient times. Uh, they didn't have anything else to do but what the king told them to do. So they come in there and everyone from the least to the greatest, from the priest to the, the peasant class, I mean, everyone is there to listen to the law. And then it keeps going. It says, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Some estimate this could have taken 10, 15 hours of reading. And in ancient times, people had much better attention spans. And so if that wears you out, they're better than we were. That's just a fact. Um, so they're listening for hours as, as Josiah, their king, reads to them the words of the law that were given to Moses, like one of the most revered names in all of their history. And I imagine you could hear a pin drop. It says, verse three, the king stood by the pillar and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and statutes and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So after reading the law, understanding and remembering who God is and what he wants for them, the king is moved and he says, I'm in. And the people are moved and they say, we're in. And they heard so much from the law and they learned who God was and what he, what he wanted from them and how he could bless them and all the things that they should be doing. And, and I can imagine one that stuck out to them was something uh, from Deuteronomy chapter six. It's, it's a prayer that's become known as the Shema. It's possible that these people's grandparents probably recited it to them because their grandparents would have grown up in the time of Hezekiah when the law had been restored. And this prayer is something that a Jewish person to this day continues to say multiple times a day. It's the Shema. It's a prayer of dedication to God. We'll read it together. It's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 4, the, the prayer is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that's a very basic part of the Jewish faith, uh, monotheism. And this stab in the gut of all these people who have been worshiping all these other gods, reminding themselves that the Lord is one. Verse 5, so love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar? Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. They would have heard so many other things from the book of the law. They would have heard the specific ways that God wanted them to treat one another. They would have learned what it meant for them to treat outsiders. That's a big deal in Jewish culture. He would uh, have taught them how to manage their homes and their families, their marriage and their food. 
they would have heard about the presence of God in and among them and how God over and over had delivered them from their enemies. They would have been reminded what it meant to be a people chosen by God to shine light into the darkness of the world. And these people, they are in awe of the treasure that's been discovered in the temple. And they're like, man, we got to do something. we got to change something. And so they pledged themselves, it says, to the covenant. As Josiah hears the law himself, uh, one thing that he notices is that the people have forgotten about the deliverance God had given them. In fact, all throughout uh, the law, there's this, there are these festivals that God says, you should observe these festivals. The festivals are reminders of the things that God had done for them. And the biggest one that they were supposed to celebrate every year and it hadn't been celebrated in generations was the celebration called the Passover feast. This was a feast that celebrated that time when God delivered the whole nation from slavery in Egypt. It's an amazing story about how God sends down these plagues to show the the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, his power. About that time when God sends an angel of destruction down to show his power, but he delivers all of the families that are of the nation of Israel if they will simply put the blood of a lamb over their doorposts. And this angel of destruction and death would pass over the homes that were faithful and obedient. So that's why they call it the Passover. And in that time, they would celebrate their deliverance from slavery. They would celebrate the power of God. And Josiah's like, dude, we haven't done that in a long time. One time, sometimes when we like realize the grief of our sin, our first reaction is guilt. And that's a healthy reaction. We talked about that last week as we talked about self-control and the fruit of the spirit. It's healthy to feel, man, I've done God wrong. But the other thing that God really wants us to do is to celebrate what he's done right. And over and over again in scripture, he says, listen, we know that you're not gonna get it right every time, but I do. And I don't want you to forget that. So celebrate me, celebrate me, celebrate me. So you know what Josiah does? He throws a party. He starts with the Passover festival. He has to appoint new priests because like there weren't any good ones. And so he appoints new priests and he gets the people organized and he goes out and he actually has to like donate the, uh, the, the lambs and the cattle for the meal and for the, the sacrifices and all this stuff. He's got to donate all that stuff out of his own personal flock because like the people weren't prepared for it. But they throw down and it says there has never been a, a, a Passover festival ever before or since like the one that Josiah threw down on. And it went on for days, and people are celebrating as they remember the goodness of God. And there's so much more in Josiah's story that we don't have, to get, don't have time to get into. You can compare back and forth between the Second Kings and the Second Chronicles, and it's really interesting. Uh, he goes and he continues to purge the land of all the false gods and the idols. And what's interesting is he had been doing that before just because it kind of felt right as an instinct. He didn't do it because he'd already read the law. He'd do it because he's like, man, I just feel like this is right. But now that he knows more, he does more. And he brings the people into a revival. And look at how his story wraps up. Second Kings chapter 23, verse 25. It says, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. He lived out the greatest commandment. He became a God chaser. He said, man, I can't control the rest of the world, but what I can control is the things that I'm responsible for, the things that I have influence over, the things that I can step into and do from my position. What does this have to do with us? 2018, we only have kings. The law of Moses is something that as New Testament believers, because of Jesus, we don't have to observe so strictly the law of Moses. What does this even mean to us? Well, next month, Venture Church, we're going to celebrate five years as a church family. Isn't that awesome? God is, woo, yes. I'm excited that God has seen us through five years, and it's exciting. Why? 
Why are we here? Isn't that a good question? Every time you put something on your calendar, you need to ask yourself, why am I doing that? You know why? Because the same God that saw the the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, the same God that saw this nation and their boneheadedness through pagan worship and all the other things and, and being conquered by other nations and through exile over and over returning to them a judge or a prophet or a good king or someone with just a good word from God, the same God who came into the earth as a human being named Jesus Christ, the same God that laid down his life as a sacrifice for us, that same God is alive and well today. And people need to know about it. People who are far from him, people who you work with, people who you're next door neighbors, people who you're married to might need to hear about it. They don't need to be invited to church. They need to be invited to a relationship with the living God. Why? We want to be God chasers because it's a show of gratitude for what God has done for us. Because he brings us life. He brings us wholeness. And the other things we put our faith in have no power. Ask any rich and famous person who gets to a point where you think there's no better success they could have. And if they don't have Jesus in their life, I'm going to tell you that every one of them will say, man, still a little bit empty. I got a list of quotes that I used to keep, and I won't even give them to you right now, but I could just quote you. Famous person after famous person after celebrity after famous uh, musician after blah, blah, blah. And, and over and over, you hear the same story. I just, it's just not satisfying. I just want more. So we see rich and famous people overdose and have five failed marriages and continue to make a fool of themselves because their gods have no power but it comes down to our level too. Anything that is not of the living God has no power. Together we are God chasers. And as a church community, we've got to stand on that like a manifesto and say, this is what we're about. Because we have discovered a treasure hidden from our culture, hidden from some of our, 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 our fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. Like they, they, they just, they, they don't know. Or maybe they knew, but they forgot about it. And we dig through the archives of scripture and we find some things. Jesus talks about a treasure once. This is in uh, the book of Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He wants to describe the kingdom of heaven to us. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and he bought that field. Did he need some real estate? Was he gonna build like a condo? You know, no. It's because he discovered this treasure and he realized that there's nothing that I own that is worth more than this treasure that I discovered. And Jesus uses it as a parable, as a metaphor, as a way for us to understand the power of knowing about the kingdom of God. Jesus is that treasure. And we would discover him when we find out who he is, when we realize I can know and be known by the living God. There's nothing that we own, nothing that we possess, nothing we can strive for that is worth more than knowing him. Jesus is the treasure. And he's worth everything. What does that mean for me and you? What does it mean to be God chasers? Well, individually, I think it means that we need to step back and take assessment of where we are in our life. Maybe like Josiah, we need to go down and tear down some high places. Maybe there's some places in our life that we just sit on a pedestal and it's like, you know what? God, I'll give you this and this and this, but not that. I worked really hard for this. Got no power. You don't believe me? Tear it down and see what happens. Maybe there's some other things in our life that have crept in and have made us forget about the power of God that we once knew. I know a lot of us are in that boat. And that happens seasonally, doesn't it? It's not like, you know, 
every 20 years. It's more like every 20 days. And we're like, oh, you know what? Gosh, I've already got off track. We need to step back and ask ourselves, who's number one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. The Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Maybe for us, I mean, for you, it means stop making excuses. I was going to do that, but man, you know, because, you know, like, because we got T-ball right now, so... Like, so I probably can't talk to my neighbors about my faith because, you know, they're going through a hard time right now and I got to replace the alternator on my car. So that's, and like, we just like, we could talk ourselves out of living for God over and over and over. Anybody with me on that? Yeah. And maybe we just need to stop making excuses. It, it might be that you've just begun the process. Like you're like, dude, for real, this is my first day and you're coming a little heavy. So I don't even really know. Look, I want to let you know, we say we're church for people who don't like church, but we love the church. Church is the bride of Christ on this earth. We are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. We love it, but our goal is to tear down the walls that have kept people away from knowing about that. So that's what it means to be church for people who don't like church. It doesn't mean we take it easy. It doesn't mean we water it down. It just means we want to make it the most accessible as it can be. So maybe you're just hearing about this. I want to tell you something. This is really cool. You don't have to know it all. It's about taking one more step. When Josiah was uh, 16 years old and he decided to like, start seeking God, he didn't have a Bible. Not because he didn't have a Bible, but because like nobody had a Bible. He just had a mentor or somebody in his life. You know what you could have? Someone that could answer some questions for you. I want to encourage you to get into a relationship with somebody. We can't program that for you. We can't be like, all right, sign up for having your life changed. No, you're going to have to seek that on your own. That's how people grow in their faith. And there are good people here who would love to do that with you, but they don't even know that you want it. And check this out. The more Josiah knew, the more he grew, and the more he did. So he started out knocking down the high places. He didn't even know why. <laughs> then he discovers the word of God, and he was like, okay, there's more to this than I thought. And with every revelation, he took another step. And I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, this is the step you can take. Come back next week. We're going to be doing it again. And come back the week after that and the week after that. And when you get up the nerve to talk to somebody, do that. And unlike Josiah's people, we do have the word of God at our fingertips in a way like never before through the internet and the apps. There's free ones in the lobby. Don't just walk past it this time. Grab it. See what's in there. So, venture church like Josiah. I want to stand as one of the leaders at our church, and I want to. I'm going to directly quote from what Josiah said, but I'm going to put in my stuff here. I want to renew my covenant in the presence of the Lord. I want to follow the Lord and keep his commandments, statutes, and decrees with all of my heart, all of my soul, and the words of the covenant written in the book. And I want you to join me in that covenant because there are people who don't know. But guess who could tell them? You. Together we are God-chasing, grace-shaped Love agents. That's our manifesto. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the time you give us to set aside to get into your word. Lord, I repent and apologize for the laziness I have in treating your word sometimes. I take days and weeks where I don't dig into it to think about Josiah and to think about other people around the world who just don't have access to your word. And here we have it on my app, on my phone. I've got like 3,000 versions of the Bible in every language under the sun. Um, Please help me, please help all of us to be serious about it, to know your word, to know your son most importantly, and to chase you with all this in us.
God, we love you. And we renew this covenant today for the glory of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.